And it's been really interesting to see what ads they think are relevant to people who are watching Top Chef. <laughs> There's a lot of medicine things targeting people with like skin conditions, like Ooh. psoriasis or um, eczema are, are two of the big ones. And also, which is germane to what we were just talking about, uh, the poise pads for people who um, have bladder control issues. Oh, that, yeah. I mean, it's brilliant marketing. Poise pads. You've got poise. Well, you got pee-pee is what you have, but... <laughs> pee-pee. <laughs> so it's, it's wild, the demographic that they, they're trying to capture with Top Chef. And yeah. so far, they really have not hit on what we're actually interested in. Well, you're just one small pathetic data point in a sea of sad, desperate, apparently incontinent people. Yes, who have a lot of disposable income. Perhaps I shouldn't have used the word sea. <laughs> well, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned, and did you hear about that AI-enhanced microwave called Magnetron that got violent and tried to kill its owner? Well, maybe... He hadn't been throwing words around like owner. Look, all I'm saying is that Maggie had some interesting ideas about you people. And uh, I mean, we, <coughs> we people. Yes. Um, with me is Chris, who is also here. Yeah, it's interesting because actually <laughs> you're supposed to cut me off, you idiot. That's the whole part of this joke. <laughs> I am bad at this. Let's talk about some tech garbage, people. Oh, you had some feelings, Chris, that were probably prodded on by me a little bit. I love that you say probably a little bit when the whole genesis of this was, hey, write about this. <laughs> You're not wrong. I know last week I said that we were going to discuss the financial earning reports of the big three cloud providers and... That is still in flight. I'm going to get to that, but unfortunately, you know, time being a flat, limited circle, I didn't, I didn't have enough of the circle this week. So instead, I made you write a thing. Right. But TLDR, uh, numbers were down lower and everyone was like, okay, it's still fine though. Still, still fine. We still, to be clear, numbers were down in terms of growth going up. Right. So still growing. But not as fast. But not as right. Right. So we're talking about velocity, acceleration. Yes. And Google. Well, we're talking about Google now. Okay. And how Google AMP sucks. <laughs> and a lot of people are trying to ditch it. Possibly even Google. Hmm. What is this AMP thing, Chris, that you speak of? So it's kind of funny because... Most people have used AMP, and I would venture even today, a lot of people don't recognize or realize it. Google AMP started out in 2015, and the project's goal was simple. Make web pages load faster on mobile devices. That sounds nice. Like, I want that on my mobile device. Especially eight years ago. Ooh, yeah, okay. The average phone data speed around that time, 6.8 megabits. And remember, that's an average. Right. So the average for the average person, God, I'm starting to turn into George Carlin. Um, <laughs> let's just say it was bad. Not great. You were desperate. You were literally watching the page click down as it loaded, especially if you had images, you were doomed. 
So Google saw this topic or, or this this thing happening, mm-hmm. and they were like, "We need people to load pages faster. Let's help." Right, and because thus, we need them to load ads faster. Correct. Okay. So help was a complicated word. <laughs> I think as we'll see as we go through this exercise. Naturally. But that was the basis of it, was just, we want people to look at the internet on their phone. So we're going to make it easier for them. And thus, AMP was born. Okay. Good things. And by that, of course, I mean, since this is Google, bad things. So, let's talk about some of the things that make AMP happen. Okay. Step one, and this is important, work has to happen in order to make AMP work. You don't just go to an AMP page. The web programmers have to build and maintain an AMP instance. Okay, so if I have a news website and I want AMP to work with my site, I have to configure a separate portion of my site that is AMP-enabled in some way. Right. I mean, it goes a little more deeply than that, and it doesn't really matter which it's not a programming podcast, but that's the goal is because it's not just caching. Google AMP does other things, and in mm-hmm. order to do other things, you have to have the hooks built into your code. Okay. And you have to maintain it because your code changes over time. Mm-hmm. The Google, Google AMP changes over time. Time changes over time. Time after time. I knew you were going to say that. I should have written it down. <laughs> I feel good about that. So what ends up happening is these things change at different speeds. And AMP became frustrating more quickly, I think, than anybody ever expected with AMP delivering impartial, broken websites. That's the opposite of good. Yes. Okay. And one of the big reasons for this is that you actually had to do it. So this started to build resentment almost immediately for people that were building websites. Not necessarily for people that were consuming them because they had no idea this was happening. Right. But like you said, there's this whole ad thing. Mm, Like 95% of Alphabet's revenue thing? Right. But before that, everybody knows and is most excited about Google's search algorithm. Google being, for most people, the front page of the internet. I know that's actually copyrighted by someone else, but let's be real. Yes. Everyone knows that being on the front page of a Google search is a guarantee of more clicks and thus more business. Mm -hmm. People shifting to mobile browsers Definitely happening in earnest around the 2015-2016 time frame. Yeah, once 4G started rolling out a little bit more aggressively. Right. Google responds by prioritizing speed in its search algorithm. Allegedly. This is not a public algorithm, so we have to make assumptions. Right. To this day, they claim that being part of the AMP program has never been a ranking signal in their search results. Which, okay. Right. I don't think anyone actually believes that, but it could be true. Sure. Maybe the favoritism is just indirect. Okay. But the the core idea is here, if you supported AMP with your site, there was a good chance that your site loaded faster, and so Google's search algorithm would favor your site over somebody else's. Right. Like I said, potentially indirect. Right. The second one, though, Let's talk about the mobile Google search news carousel. 
Marcel. All right, now I'm creeped out, and I'm not even sure why. <laughs> I feel like this is about it. Uh, no, no, it's because you have a gem embedded in your hand, and it's time to ascend. It's time for Carousel. You've never seen this movie, have you? My God, man, have I found a movie you don't know? Is this the Garfield 2 movie? Garfield 3. Ah, the Garfield Nation. I haven't watched that one yet. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, it heavily involves Wolverine in a plot to reclaim his name as Logan. You could say he took a run at it. Do you get it? I do get it, but I'm just not going to justify it with <laughs> any it. type of response. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. So tell me about the news carousel. <laughs> so the search results that you get on your mobile have this little thing at the top. It's a little swipey thing. It shows you pretty pictures. It's nice. Top of the page. Remember, that's important. Mm -hmm. Guess what you had to do for your website in order to be in that news carousel? You had to be part of the AMP program. Ah, there it is. So thus, Google essentially began forcing traffic to use AMP. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, top of the page matters. Google owns the top of the page. You have to be in AMP for the top of the page news carousel. Okay. This led to an increasing number of unhappy to incensed bloggers and web developers over a period of years eventually... At least one, if not many, I believe the correct answer is many, lawsuits claiming antitrust violations by Google. According to a 16-state lawsuit, there's also plenty of other shenanigans going on. AMP is built in a way that makes it harder for sites to sell ad space outside of the Google ad exchange. Mm, because okay. we did talk about this whole Google is an ad company, right? We, we've mentioned that at least once. There are other ad companies. No, never heard of them. <laughs> so Google did this to make it easier for you to use the Google ad exchange. Mm. Yes. Okay. There's a lot of programming that went into why this happens and headers and auctions and it's I'm getting dizzy just thinking about it. But it happened, and they got sued for it uh, a number of times. Mm -hmm. In describing another way that Google AMP gives their own Google ad service a little help, the lawsuit further states, quote, Google throttles the load time of non-AMP ads by giving them artificial one-second delays in order to give Google AMP a nice comparative boost. Wow. Google does not want a world filled with less ads. Google wants a world filled with only Google ads. Yeah, okay, so that's not great. Did I mention that they had already long ditched the don't be evil mantra? I didn't, I didn't have to mention that, did I? I? No, at this point, I don't think anyone needs you to mention that again. So that's the background. Now it seems that enough is starting to be enough. And a number of web content producers, including major web providers like Vox and BuzzFeed, are thinking of ditching AMP entirely. And they are not alone. And this is not new. Mm -hmm. The Washington Post dropped it in 2021. And like I said, AMP has never been without controversy. A lot of people grumbled, you know, kind of grinned and bore it. Right. And that feels like it's coming to an end. Okay. Is there... Aside from the fact that Google gets to show you more ads, is there a downside on the consumer for loading an AMP page as opposed to a web page that's non-AMP? 
Well, as we'll get into, one of the bigger concerns around ads in general is personally identifiable information. The world famous web fingerprint. Mm, okay. If all your traffic is routed through Google, guess what Google gets to do? Inspect all of your traffic. There we are. Okay. <laughs> and we will get to that in more detail towards the end. Excellent. All right. But it's interesting because it does feel like Google is trying to give up on AMP too. Hmm. I think the bad press far more than anything else. They still recommend it, of course, mm -hmm. and they still are in total denial that AMP is bad, refuting all claims against it. Basically, their argument boils down to, nah, -uh. <laughs> which, you know, convincing. I am convinced personally. I have never seen a judge reject that argument. No, no, it's, it's, it's more bulletproof than the Wookiee defense, <laughs> if we're being honest. But it really does seem like Google is moving away from this idea, or at least trying to de-emphasize it. One of the biggest things that they did was they removed the little lightning bolt next to an AMP page on the Google search results, mm. which was a visual cue for people to realize this page loads faster. I will click on this. Because there's, uh, in addition to the fact that it may not actually load faster. There's uh, that. Uh, yeah. That's it. And now we know that that actually indicates something else, which is you're only going to see Google ads through this lens. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you make a good point. Um, one of the big reasons that these providers are starting to ditch it is they're doing a better job on their own, making websites load faster mm -hmm. using magic. Well, I mean, in the last seven years, there have been some developments in web design that have streamlined how quickly your page will load. Uh, the rise of CDNs has been a big factor in that. The fact that the page you're requesting is now housed in a location that's less than a mile from you. Right. It's going to get there a little faster. And also, web traffic in general has gotten faster. You know, now we have 5G. There's, I'm sure, 6G and 12G. And I don't know what kind of crazy numbering scheme we're going to have. The speed in general has gotten to the point that AMP is no longer necessary. Right, right. So we have a technology that was contentious to begin with and now wholly unnecessary. Right. And if I were using a browser, I would not want it to use AMP because I don't like all the potentially bad things. The Googling that goes on. Yes. Which also sounds like something that needs to be discussed in front of a judge. Right. So speaking of browsers... An interesting, let's say, latecomer slash chaos agent Ooh. in the browser marketplace. See what I did there? I did. Well done. Brave Browser has been making a lot of headway, um, basically blowing raspberries at Google. I, I uh, Only one browser would dare give them the raspberry. <laughs> that would be awesome if they called it Lone Star. <laughs> <laughs> one thing is for, cer for certain... Brave, ironically, at this point, Chromium-based, does not like Google AMP. Last week, Brave put out a blog post that stated AMP is harmful to privacy and, quote, helps Google further monopolize and control the direction of the web. Basically citing all the things that we just talked about. Uh -huh. Brave has also released a de-AMP feature that allows users to bypass AMP and hit web pages directly, regardless of what Google's redirects attempted to do. Oh, all right. 
Brave stated that the DAMP adds to the long list of Brave features that put users first on the web as kind of a rah-rah stinger. Hmm. And a fair one. Yes. So it's safe to say that Brave and the Goog have really not ever been friends. In 2020, Brave threw a complaint into the EU court claiming Google's vague to the point of useless privacy policies constituted violations of GDPR. Their claim was that, quote, new evidence reveals Google reuses our personal data between its businesses and products in bewildering ways that infringe the purpose limitation principle. Google's internal data free-for-all infringes the GDPR. Hmm. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the GDPR is a really big deal. Yeah, I do remember something about that in the consulting days. It could cost them tens of dollars. Yeah. Or 4% of their revenue yearly. There's that, which is more? More. More. Okay. All right. I mean, that was in 2020, and you know how long these things take. Mm -hmm. So it's just buried at the bottom of the pile with all the antitrust and anti-privacy lawsuits from just this decade. Mostly involving Google. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Side lawsuit as a, uh, you know, illustration. Mm. One of this year's fun ones involves Google getting sued for stacking the deck in favor of its own Google shopping product. This EU lawsuit claims that Google is in breach of an antitrust enforcement order that came from a 2017 suit prohibiting this behavior and states that Google has never not been in breach of that order. (laughs) I guess for their part, at least they're consistent. (laughs) Amen to that. Anyway, pause on Brave. Okay. DuckDuckGo, a local PA company, Paoli, if you don't know. Ooh. I didn't know. I didn't know that either. This is news to me. Uh, They're a privacy-focused search engine with a building business, but the search engine is where they made their name. Mm -hmm. Uh, Announced a similar plan, stating that DuckDuckGo browser apps will convert any AMP links to the original publisher's webpage before being displayed. They are coming at it from the user privacy angle, too, stating... AMP technology is bad for privacy because it enables Google to track users even more, which is already a ton. Yeah, okay. That was in the quote. That last part was in the quote. That was not... I love that that's... Even the little parenthetical is part of the quote. Okay. <laughs> and side point, DDG has a privacy plugin for other browsers that helps make visible all of the horrendous things that happen. Uh, they assist with encryption using HTTPS always, anti-tracking, private search, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I should have known about that already, or at least assumed that it existed. You should have. I really, Why didn't you? I blame you for not telling me. You blame me for not making you write this earlier. Yes. That's fair. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, really, are we giving Google too hard of a time? Hashtag no. No, let's talk about the latest awful thing. Oh, good. And latest actually is kind of not a great word because this became a project in June of 2021. Mm -hmm. So I actually didn't know it went all the way back to that time. But it's making news now because it's getting more headway. Google has quite the share of the market of browsers. Yes. Google Chrome, mm-hmm. which you might have heard of, eh. over 50%. Yep, that sounds about right. I thought and, it was higher than that. Well, we're, we're going with conservative numbers because some of this stuff is impossible to actually track mm-hmm. precisely. Of course. So let's just go with over 50% pretty confidently. Mm-hmm. So what would Google do with that kind of market share? 
Why force new privacy-violating tracking technology on you to sell more ads, of course? All in the service of improving your user privacy. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) So, Google is working on a new user tracking system called FLOC, or I'm going to pronounce it Flock, because I think that's what they want us to do. It's an embarrassing backronym. Waka Flocka Flame is not impressed. (laughs) And I'm sure we'll pile on yet another lawsuit. Brave and DDC, of course, immediately blocked this. <laughs> Good. Um, Flock is short for Federated Learning of Cohorts. So, like I said, embarrassing backronym. Oh. It basically aims to replace third-party cookies that were specifically reporting about you in order to serve those magical targeted ads with a new mechanism for generically reporting about you in order to serve those magical targeted ads. Do we need to explain anything about third-party cookies? You have 30 seconds. Okay, so third-party cookies are basically files that reside on your system that are deployed by third-party websites in order to track your activity across the web. 10 seconds. There are many browsers that now block third-party cookies by default, and Google doesn't like that. Actually, back to 20 seconds. <laughs> wow, okay, I earned it back. They're trying to be, like, legit about this flock thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's super hip. They've got a GitHub page and everything. Like you do. From said GitHub pages, read me. We, being Google, plan to explore ways in which a browser can group together people with similar browsing habits so that ad tech companies can observe the habits of large groups instead of the activity of individuals. So the idea here is to organize you into groups or cohorts, and then the browsing habits can be examined for that group rather than any specifically identified user. Okay. It seems well-intentioned, perhaps, but ultimately doomed to failure. Fair. The EFF helpfully points out, quote, Flock is meant to be a new way to make your browser do the profiling that third-party trackers used to do themselves. In this case, boiling down your recent browsing activity into a behavioral label and then sharing it with websites and advertisers. I don't know if you're going to cover this at any point, but it has been showed time and time again that de-anonymizing data is not a significantly difficult thing to do. I believe the word is trivial. Yes, that was the one I was looking for. A trivial pursuit, one might say. Play me for money. No, absolutely <laughs> not. I'm terrible at that game. Uh, unless the answer is Herbe Villachez, which is true of at least two of the original uh, cards. Which is two more than I would have expected. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, the idea that you're put into an anonymous cohort that someone can't then figure backwards who you are and where you reside... Doesn't hold up to me. It's an absurdity. Yes. And the trouble is that a lot of the publicly available grouping methodologies or algorithms that they're going to use have been picked apart (laughs) almost immediately. (laughs) Of course. And the trouble is that you can be figured out. One of the biggest reasons for this is not all of us just have a generic interest in like Top Speed and Top Chef and other shows that start with Top. Top you gear, know, of what, course. Oh, that's the one I was thinking of. You were trying. <clears throat> I saw you trying. Struggling even. <laughs> Never watched a single episode. <laughs> I mean, the trouble is, you know, 
let's take you specifically. Of course. You know, you go uh, watching a lot of Top Gear and Top Chef, and then eventually you're going to look up Tamagotchis because you thought that spelled T-O-P and you got confused. Boom. Yeah. Unique identifier. Now you're in a cohort that's got all these one things that are normal, generic, large groups of people in them. Right. And this one very specific. That has like small group. Three people in it. And only one of them is from Pennsylvania. Right. How hard is that going to be to track down? Exactly. All of this is helpfully tied up in your flock token, mm. which makes it, as I said, trivially easy to deconstruct. I don't think you're allowed to call it a flock token. Again, Waka Flocka Flame has been making his own cryptocurrency, and he already has flock token on lock. It's flock actually, on lock. You are correct. It's actually a flock ID. So totally different. But really, doing these types of deconstructions, it can be reasonably used to assess and know your gender, ethnicity, or income. You know, those personally identifiable informations. Mm, Yes. And if you don't think that this is realistic, remember the famous example of Target knowing the state of a person's pregnancy based on only purchase patterns. And that was a decade ago. Time and computers have moved on. Yes. Okay. So suffice it to say, ads are bad. The ads that are worth the most money require user profiling. Generic ads get some ridiculous percentage off, like 9% of the value of a targeted ad. Mm -hmm. This means that privacy and profit in the ad space do not work together. No. Period. Mm. And since Google's main source of revenue is ads, no matter what, when it comes to that privacy versus profit, there is absolutely no reason to think Google will ever lean towards privacy in a meaningful fashion. Oh, did I also mention that Google enabled this feature for you with little to no fanfare or notification as a part of a silent Chrome version update? I am shocked, sir. Shocked. Do I look shocked? This is a shocked face. So shocked. Can you put a bag over it? It's frightening me. Uh, I get that a lot. So an alternative would be to use a browser that's not Chrome? Yes. At the very least, use Chromium or a Chromium fork like Vivaldi, as we talked about before. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite of these. You can get all the advantages of the Chrome... um, Ecosystem? Yes. without all of the automatic default sharing of information back to Google. And of course, do not opt out. I mean, do not opt in to Flock. Opt out of Flock. Yes. But there's other reasons that we kind of got a lot uh, into the Google ad world, but there's plenty of other reasons that a different browser in the ecosystem is important. Agreed. And I think it's important to bring up that the fact uh, that Internet Explorer... Still exists and is a thing, but Microsoft has been increasingly pushing people towards Edge, and Edge is Chromium based. Correct. So, really, what browsers are there that aren't Chromium based? Well, there's Safari. Mm hmm. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> moving on quickly, there is everybody's favorite, which is starting to feel like the history of time where everybody loves it but nobody uses it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's favorite. Mozilla Firefox. It will probably not shock you to know that Flock does not come standard with Firefox. Mozilla evaluated Flock similarly to the way that Brave did and determined that it was, well, let's say, wanting. Mm. 
The trouble here, like you alluded to, is that Chrome is becoming a de facto default for many users. Mm -hmm. More than 50% of the market easily. Mm -hmm. This means that we can run into issues where a suggestion like Flock quickly becomes a default. This is one of the great use cases for why the web needs variety. Mm -hmm. There have been many cases already, some of them years old, where websites have been rejecting access to applications based on the browser being used. Mm -hmm. Why do they want to do that? Because they are relying on Chromium-type functionality that is not based on a web standard. You want to see this in action today, right now? Compare and contrast logging into Microsoft Teams on Firefox and on Chrome. See what works and what doesn't. There's a certain amount of irony here that this was a significant problem with Internet Explorer and ActiveX. Correct. And one of the big things that Chrome touted was the fact that they were web standard compliant, whereas IE was not. So if you built your website using regular web standards, it would perform better in Chrome than IE. The only reason IE still sticks around is because there's some very old legacy websites, usually internal applications, that still use those ActiveX controls. Right. And while you're trampling all over one of my lightning round items, you are absolutely <laughs> correct. I'm tap dancing, friend. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so why would a website want to do this? Hmm. Well... First of all, how? The way that you do the how is the browser announces itself. When you log on to web application ABC, mm -hmm. you say, hey, my name's Ned. I love Tamagotchis, and I'm using Firefox. And I work in a button factory. <laughs> and the website says, great. I'm going to give you a customized version of this experience that will work best on Firefox. Uh -huh. Alternatively, they will say, Firefox? <laughs> Mm. We will give you nothing, and you'll like it. Yes, I've, I've uh, encountered that in more than one occasion. And the way this is done is with a user-agent string. This is because different browsers want to show pages in different ways. And we will leave in the show notes a humorous history of the user-agent string. Mm -hmm. And it is humorous, because if you look at agent strings, they are bizarre and nonsensical. To the point of modern poetry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Suffice it to say, web developers have always found this kind of annoying. They want to write specific, mm -hmm. not general. Mm -hmm. They don't want to write to every user string. Right. I do not want them to write specific. <laughs> okay. Right. They would rather write to the Chrome browser, which most people use. There is, for us, the, the little people. Yes. A lot of value in forcing web app developers to stay general and avoid specific. Not least because sometimes they go bankrupt or otherwise out of business or change the engine under the hood. This is the whole reason that web standards are supposed to exist. Mm -hmm. Those helpful specifics become often insurmountable liabilities. The whole thing that you just said about IE6 applies here. Indeed. And the biggest problem is whoever has the largest share of the browsers can create non-standard standards that will be adopted by the bulk of web developers. Right. So we need to keep 
the variety of the browsers enough that there is a single standard that's agreed upon by the standards bodies that they need to, at a minimum, adhere to. Right. You know, and there's, I mean, there's a number of different ways to attack this. The first one is, I don't think that the average user of a web page cares about 90% of the features or functionality enhancements that web developers insist on putting in. No, I want to watch Top Boss, and <laughs> if you don't let me watch it, then I will be very frustrated. Right. Like we all do. Of course. So I don't know what the situation would be without the internet being government controlled. How do you really force it? Because my first thought was, we just eliminate the idea that you can specify the browser you're writing the page to, period. Mm. Get rid of user age and string. All you know is Ned logged in and he loves Tamagotchi. Mm. Then you give me a page that works whether I'm looking at it with you know, a Gecko-based or a WebKit-based or a Chromium-based. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. The page has to be able to render. You know, We've had acid tests for how long? And how of all that time, how often have web browsers been 100% compliant? Hmm. Or web pages? Web pages, yes. Well, I'm sure Google has tuned into our podcast and is taking furious notes to improve the compliance of Chrome. I think that they're furious. Yes, okay. Well, I got one thing right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, I know I tap danced all over your lightning round item, but... You want to do it anyway? Sure. It counts as news. Okay. Microsoft Internet Explorer is still a thing until June 15th. Dun, dun, dun. Y'all remember IE, right? Uh-huh. The browser that Microsoft forced down our throats for a decade and a half, claimed in court was essential to the running of the Windows operating system, and as recently as 2009 commanded well over 50% of the browser market? Mm-hmm. The browser that came with a massive amount of those proprietary web design features that are not present in any other browser, including IE's successor Edge, including ActiveX. <laughs> well, now it's official. Again. For sure. No so, take backs. Yeah, seriously this time. IE is being sunsetted, and Microsoft is encouraging, nay begging people, to ditch it ASAP. This is particularly challenging as there are still a lot of web-based apps that are essential to some businesses that rely on those very proprietary features and thus will force the usage of IE or the sad half-measure band-aid known as IE mode for Edge and some elbow grease well after June 15th. I don't want to go on too much of a tirade, but we replaced ActiveX with Java and replaced Java with Flash and we keep getting it wrong. Yes. Okay. Atlassian provides exhaustive summary of incident. And I do mean exhaustive. So it's two tweets instead of one? This sucker has an executive summary because they know you aren't going to read the whole thing. You know, it reminds me of those design documents I used to write for clients, securing the knowledge they'd never make it past the fourth page. Is that why the back half of your documents was all Laura Mitzum? Mm-hmm. Wow. I think we have to give credit where credit's due. When we mentioned the outage back in episode 5, it seemed like Atlassian dropped the ball when it comes to communicating with the impacted customers. Their, their full post-incident review clarifies 
that not only did they accidentally delete the sites of 775 customers, the process also somehow deleted the contact information for some of the site owners. Customers were unable to open a support ticket since they no longer existed, and the Atlassian team couldn't reach out to the site owner because they didn't know who it was. The good news is that they were eventually able to recover the data and sites for all of their customers with a data retention of 99.6%. Any losses of data would be from the approximately five minutes between the most recent snapshot of a site and the permanent deletion of said site. Needless to say, Atlassian is implementing several process improvements to prevent this issue from happening again. If you want a deep dive on what occurred, how the situation was handled, and a peek into the infrastructure and design of Atlassian's Jira service, I would highly recommend reading the whole thing. Did they talk about how they went totally radio silent for like two weeks and denied anything was wrong? I don't think that's actually in it. Weird. Yeah, I know. VMware clarifies the ESXi boot from SD card situation for the millionth time. Frankly, I'm still unclear. Me too. <laughs> for all of recorded history, which in social media terms is approximately three years, it has been possible to install ESXi on an SD card and boot from it. This was good. It let you use all the internal disk for virtual machines. That was at least until ESXi version 7. The ESXi boot had gotten more complex, split up some tasks, and the SD card was not performant enough. Thus, VMware announced that you can't use SD cards to boot ESXi 7. <laughs> this caused people to go bananas. The thing is, it's not actually bad advice. SD cards are not a great place to work from. There's no error correction, for one thing. They're slow and they have a staggeringly high failure rate based on I.O. Guess what does a lot of I.O.? A running kernel. <laughs> this is also, incidentally, why you can't log to the SD card. That's a lot of I.O. too. Mm -hmm. Now, VMware had been notifying major manufacturers that just this change was coming since at least 2016. Notices that these manufacturers steadfastly ignored leaving customers and administrators with a lot of systems that they couldn't use for this task when ESXi 7 came out. This week, VMware softened their stance. While still insisting that SD is the least recommended way to go forward, they will support booting from it through at least ESXi version 8. That should be long enough for this generation of hardware to get through amortization and retirement, and surely manufacturers will heed the warnings this time. Surely. Surely. Mm. One of the things that was brought up about this particular change was if you are using ESXi on edge devices, SD card might be one of your only options, or a USB drive. Neither of which are great, I agree. But when all you have is a Raspberry Pi. Well, I did see there is some technology uh, trying to use the same size slot SD cards that include error checking at the, mm. at the least, which is going to like triple the cost of the card. Yes. But it's better than having to throw away the entire device. I remember some systems that had dual SD card slots in it so you could have them mirrored. Yeah. That was the thing. Well, that's how a lot of digital cameras work. Right. Because that's how unreliable SD cards are. 
We use the same technology as digital cameras to run your production infrastructure, people. Production infrastructure. We learned this from Canon. Couldn't have happened to a nicer fella. In the same way you know you've made it if Weird Al parodies your song, you know you've made it in tech when your service receives a record-breaking DDoS attack. A post by Cloudflare, courtesy of Ars Technica, details a recent DDoS attack against a customer using the Cloudflare platform. The undisclosed customer was running a crypto launchpad, which is essentially an offering to DeFi investors before a cryptocurrency is formally launched. Listeners will know that I am not a fan of crypto in general, so I wouldn't have lost sleep if their site had been deep-sixed by the DDoS, but nay, nay good sir. Cloudflare was able to mitigate the attack and keep the site afloat. There are two notable aspects of this record-breaking attack. First, this was the largest application layer attack Cloudflare has seen using HTTPS, not just HTTP. Running an HTTPS attack, in this case 15.3 million requests per second for 15 seconds, requires the establishment of a TLS connection, which is more costly in compute resources than a simple HTTP connection. That's punishing to both the client and service, which means the attacker needs to have more than just Wi-Fi crockpots on its side. And sure enough, that brings us to the second interesting point. The attack came largely from cloud compute ISPs. Specifically, it came from 112 countries with Indonesia and Russia leading the pack. In an email to Ars Technica, Cloudflare's VP of product indicated that the majority of bots appeared to be running Java applications, likely on compromised cloud machines. This represents a significant shift from previous botnets that focused on devices on residential ISPs, such as the aforementioned crockpot. If you're currently running a fleet of VMs in the cloud, it might be time to make sure you're patched up and not blitzing a random website with HTTPS requests. Pixel Watch Prototype found by review site. It seems fine. Fine. First, can we stop pretending that major manufacturers forget things at restaurants? <laughs> Is this plausible to anyone at all, anywhere, anymore? No. Let's just be honest. Nobody, quote, found a prototype lying around at a restaurant and sent pictures of it to Android Central on the condition of anonymity. <clears throat> anyway. anyway, the story is about a Google Pixel watch. It seems fine. Hmm. I don't know how to help with that. Here are other things you can try. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. It'll have cellular. It's round, and it doesn't have a bezel. It is bigger than a 40-millimeter Apple Watch and is, you know, a circle. Hmm. At first glance, without the band attached, it kind of looks like a pocket watch, which, if you think about it, this is the untapped market. Absolutely. Make that sucker 50% bigger, install a click-to-open case, sell a watch chain for a 5,000% markup. The hipsters would be all over it. We need to... Copyright this immediately. Immediately. Shut it down, people. <laughs> Shut it down. <laughs> I'm really, I'm not sure what the excitement is here. It's a smartwatch. Mm -hmm. 
the market is totally saturated with smartwatches. You can get a free one from Verizon with a renewal. Wow. I am really wondering why Google is choosing now to enter this market. But enter they shall. And if the interwebs are right, it could be as soon as May 11th's I.O. conference. Prepare to be whelmed. <laughs> well, they, they have to match what Apple has. Do they, though? They seem to think so. My Apple other... has a phone. Google has a phone. Apple has earbuds. Google has Pixel Buds. Apple has a watch. Google has, uh-oh, better make a Pixel Watch. Yeah, that's probably as far as the logic went, isn't it? Uh-huh, yep. Istio to join the CNCF family. Finally. Boy, howdy. Google really took their time on this one. The whole kerfuffle involved with Istio, trademarks, the CNCF, and IBM of all companies could fill an entire main article. But personally, I find this infighting and political intrigue not all that intriguing. So allow me to put it succinctly. When Google created Kubernetes and donated it to the CNCF, they also gave up the trademark rights to Kubernetes. Some folks in Google didn't like that so much. And so they created the Open Usage Commons in 2020 for the Istio project, allowing them to retain control over the trademark going forward. What transpired was a series of snippy missives between IBM's Jason McGee and Chris DeBona of Google. Part of the trademark conversation was driven by AWS's creation of Elasticsearch and the perceived infringement on Elastic's trademarks. Google is trying to protect what it feels, rightly, is a valuable trademark by creating a legal framework to govern its use. Others, IBM, feel that this is not in harmony with the spirit of open source projects and want Google to just donate Istio to the CNCF like it promised and stop with all this OUC nonsense. It would seem that IBM's wishes have mostly prevailed and Google is handing the project and trademarks over to the CNCF, although technically the trademark will still be under the OUC license. With Istio entering the CNCF, it joins the other half of the service mesh stack Envoy. What this means for other service mesh solutions like Open Service Mesh, Nginx Service Mesh, and Console Connect remains to be seen, but I suspect the writing is very much on the wall for most of them. So what I'm taking from this is that Google being stubborn has made it out like IBM is the good guy? I know. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's impressive. Well done, everybody. <sighs> the Elon Addendum. In other news, Elon continues to be a very silly man who has no idea what he's talking about, but cannot seem to stop talking. Perhaps if he did, he'd actually have to think about his words and what they mean. And therein lies madness. TechCrunch continues on their streak of calling out Elon's bullshit, this time with Devin Koldui, who rightly takes Elon to task for expressing a second grader's grasp of free speech. We highly recommend reading the whole thing, but I'll just leave this quote here as an appetizer. Quote, Elon, your ideas on free speech are not what I would call evil or abhorrent by a long shot. They're just wrong. They're wrong because you are ignorant of the most basic context and precedent surrounding these concepts, as well as the highly specialized situational knowledge that informs the creation and management of a modern communication platform. You simply have no goddamn idea what you're talking about. End quote. 
Hey, thanks for listening or something. I, I guess you found it worthwhile if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now go sit on the couch, eat a walking taco, even though you're sitting, and watch all of the episodes of Top Gear. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 or at Hainer80, respectively, or follow this show at Chaos Lever, Chaos underscore Lever, if that's the kind of thing you're into, you weirdo. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com if you like reading things, but you don't like reading things. You like listening to things and eating tacos and giving us money, right? Right? Don't you want to support us? Just put $5 cash in an envelope and address it to chaosbot5000. It'll get to our secret chaos layer in due time. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. We get enough of those uh, envelopes and we can get a larger volcano. Yes. It's a hot market. <laughs> <laughs>